Welcome to another episode of Crash Chords Autographs. I, of course, am Matt, a.k.a. Stormageddon. This intro is going to be a tiny bit longer because I want to plug something I'm really excited about. But before we get to that, as always, I want to start off by thanking my patrons, and in particular, thanking MJ, Rob, Emily, Greg, Rocco, and Case. Um, thank you for being a part of my Patreon. You get your shout-outs, as always. Uh, if anyone else wants to join my Patreon, you just go to patreon.com slash stormageddon. And uh, you can find it there. There are a bunch of different tiers. The $5 tier or higher, you get a shout-out on the podcast. Um, There are a variety of different offerings, including T-shirts, playlists, DJ sessions, parties, the whole nine yards. Again, patreon.com slash stormageddon. If you can't do that, a like, a subscribe, a review goes a long way. I know we're living in a weird time, so asking for money is a little hard as we're all struggling to different levels during a pandemic. That said... Before we get to this week's episode, I have a project I've been working really hard on that I'm really excited just premiered. As of when this releases, it premiered yesterday. It's called SideQuest. It's within the Fun and Games feed. It is a Fun and Games mini-sode, sort of speak. Um, the full title is Fun and Games SideQuest. It's essentially a rotating cast of hosts talking about their f- not necessarily their favorite game, but a game they love and why they love it. Episodes run between 6 to 15 minutes. They're designed to be very personal. The only person on the episode, besides the intro, outro, and an ad that I may run, is the person hosting. I do the first episode this Friday. Jeff will be doing the second episode. And then it is a rotating cast of hosts after that, from other folks on certain POV to folks in games, media, burlesque performers, pretty much anyone who wants to talk about games that they love. I'm really pushing it because I've had this idea for several months, if not longer, and I'm really excited to share it with the world now that it actually exists, and more importantly, share the positivity within gaming space and just celebrating why we love games and the games that we love. You can find that anywhere you find Fun and Games. It's in the main feed. You can go to certainpov.com, or you can go wherever you get your podcast. It's just Fun and Games podcast on any podcast provider. With all of that said, let us get into this week's episode, which is, of course, with the incredible, magical funny Matt Donnelly. I met Matt on a cruise, not any cruise actually, my honeymoon. Um, And I actually recorded an episode of Autographs on the boat that ended up airing in the feed. Matt now comes back solo to talk about his magic career and things that have changed in the last five years since we last spoke. And I'm really excited to have him on the show. He's been doing a lot of really cool stuff. So without further ado, here is me chatting with the incredible and very handsome Matt Donnelly. somewhere in this mess find an edit point to start the actual conversation for the for the recording but um okay. uh matt thank you so much for joining me uh it's good to have you back on autographs matt donnelly of the infamous ice cream social podcast yes very infamous as <laughs> most listeners definitely know about that podcast sure is it weird now having because when i first met you 
for a little backstory yeah. for those who might have skipped the episode of the origin of me and Matt chatting. I met Matt on my honeymoon, which was super cool yes. and super weird. Uh, my spouse had taken an <laughs> improv. Well, because Sarah went and took an improv class and she was so excited. She, You guys talked to her about the podcast and she's like, Matt, you've got podcasts. You've got to talk to these guys. They're really funny. They're really great. Um and, like, we ended up becoming pretty fast friends on the ship the whole time we were there. Like, we all hung out a bunch. For sure. Which, yeah, yeah. Which was really fun and really cool. Um, and so, like, back then, I wasn't even a listener yet. And now, I've been listening to the show for years. Can you believe it's almost five years since that cruise? Oh, my gosh. No, I can't believe that. That is, that is interesting. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, that makes sense now, of course. But, yeah. Uh, yeah. No, it does. It does not feel like it was five years ago. No, I, I only remember because Sarah and I's anniversary will is this month. Uh, will be five years, and so yeah, it's it's just crazy how time flies. But like back then, you had a devote following even then. But now I feel like comparative, like Penn Sunday School was clearly the headliner of like your podcast career at that point. Like more notoriety there. Whereas now. Do you feel like there's a shift, like more people know you from ICS than Penn Sunday School? I think so. I mean, yeah, I, th I think so. I basically that like anyone who would have, I mean, Penn is still gigantically famous, but sure. uh, I feel like anyone who was going to take a departure from Penn world into my world has either taken that leap or is definitely not taking that leap. <laughs> like either they're ready for it or they're just not going to bother. Yeah, yeah. There's been like two big swipes of like, hey, you like podcasting. I can do more of those a week than Penn can with his busy schedule. Why don't you come on over? And then uh, with the second s swing being that Penn, they're like, why don't you try to learn magic? Oh, you're, it looks like you're getting pretty good at it. Are you, you going to stick with it kind of thing? Yeah. yeah. And like with, with Ice Cream Social, I mean... Does it ever stop astonishing you the way the community reacts and the support that you guys get? Or are you always surprised by it? Oh, I'm always comforted by it. Um, like surprise on like a low level surprise for sure. But like, yeah, like wherever I go, it's like this like uh, secret handshake that I have, you know? Yeah. So it's like um, I'm in, you know, if I tour, I'm usually opening for Piff or, you know, doing like weird you know, or doing smaller venues on my own as a magician, um, you know, and then all of a sudden someone says something to let me know that they're an ice cream social listener. And I have to, uh, not have to, I, I get to kind of like let my, let my eager to introduce myself guard down to be like, Oh, okay. You, you know me. Yeah. How, how's it going? You know? Um, so whenever, whenever, uh, scoops as my listeners are called, uh, reveal themselves to me in different locations, I'm always very relieved. Um, to, to, to get into that conversation with them. It must take the pressure off a little bit. Yeah. I mean, you know, um, they know me and, and that's something that I don't, uh, find weird or in any way. I think one of the craziest things I hear when I talk to other podcasters is they'll be like, yeah, but now they know all this stuff. And it's like, well, the only, there's only one source of information. <laughs> and, uh, so, I share, I've been sharing a lot about my life on podcasts for, for now, you know, almost like eight years. And so when someone comes up to me and says, Hey, I listen to, to Penn Sunday school and ice cream social or just ice cream social or whatever. They know me. They know how old my kids are. They know what I've been up to. They know how long I've been doing magic. They know, you know, whatever. And now if they listen to the magic podcast, Abracababble, 
They know how long I've been working on each trick they just saw on the show. You know, they know which which ones haven't been going good, which have been going good. You know, and and that kind of thing. So, um, I I I like it uh, a lot. Yeah, I mean, it, what was interesting for me as a listener, well, as a friend meeting you first and becoming friends, and then becoming a listener, is I then yeah. got to reunite with you at the pit. Uh, I think a year or two later, you did a improv show with your old improv group. Yeah, possible side effects. Yeah, yeah, possible side effects. And and Sarah was there, and your oldest was there, and I got to meet them, and they were lovely. And but I felt almost like I knew them already. It and yeah. it was, and it's weird because and it's because of us having spent time and then listening to the podcast, you get you get this sense of camaraderie to a certain degree. Oh, for sure. And I think that's what the, that's the only place where I get a little. Uh, conflicted. Sure. You know, it's it's like my my kids didn't sign up for this. Right. And my, and my wife necessarily didn't necessarily sign up for it either, but at least she kind of understands what it means, you know. Um, but there's, you know, sh- she's more cool than she used to be about people coming up and knowing stuff about her. Right. Or, I guess in her case, more importantly, like knowing comedic bits about <laughs> her that she, that aren't necessarily <laughs> based right. in fact. Right. Um, you know, I think it's like why I try to say like my oldest and my youngest all the time instead of yeah. saying my kids' names. Yeah, like um, y- you know, the, the my co-hosts will say their names and stuff like that. So I'm not, I'm not like militant about it. I'm not trying to get it going, but I just I simply don't want strangers to go up to them and start the conversation. Sure, uh, with them and and because because they're not that that's not something they understand that they've signed up for. For sure. Um, I- but but that's I'm, mo- I'm saying that as a, as a uh, that's still an existential fear. This yeah. hasn't happened. Right. It's not something that, you know. So I, I I'm 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 speaking maybe from a, a place of inner caution more than um, if filing any actual complaint. Sure. You know? I mean, in the internet age, that's kind of part of it, right? Like we're all putting ourselves out there in a way, and you're 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 being as open and honest as you can, but also you have to remember that there are people out there that may use that information one way or the other. And so you have to be careful to a degree. Oh, for sure. For sure. I mean, the, the, you know, the point of like, even, even like, you know, documenting my magic career in, in a podcast uh, was only because of like realizing what I had done with ice cream social and what I, what Penn was doing with Penn Sunday school. And, and you and I talked, you know, off air when you were going into, you know, different, different ways you're trying to pursue your podcasting, you know, um, that, I always said the secret sauce of a podcast is it's a reality show. Yeah, that like uh, that you're 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 taking people into your reality and you're making them see stories in your reality. And a podcast is so much more intimate than a television show. Yeah, you know, you're really spending time with people in their in their in their more quiet spaces. You know, whether they're working or at the gym or taking a walk or you know doing housework, or whatever. You're just in it, just taking a shower. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, you're you're in different spaces with them than, than you are when you're on television, and so uh, I kind of understood that bargain philosophically, and it's been neat to see it play out in the real world. For sure, um, shifting the conversation to magic for a little bit. When we first met, 
you weren't doing magic at all. You didn't really have any interest in magic. You were you were an improviser. None. It was you love. We talked. I mean, when you were when you were on the podcast, you we talked a lot about comedy, and I talked about your comedy background. And now, since then, since five years ago, I've now started three other podcasts because I'm a crazy person. And now you have a magic You're talking career. to someone with three, yeah. <laughs> but and and now you have a magic career that started as a hillbilly character that's now evolved into you just being you on stage yeah so, so talk a little bit about the origins of hillbill and why you decided to make the shift into matt donnelly my noodler and like how that came to be sure uh i mean comedy was definitely my lifelong passion and, and still is you know when i was right. a kid i dreamed of being a stand-up as i got I found improv in high school. I started studying at 15, started doing shows every Friday and Saturday night at 16, my hometown, and from there into New York and everything else. And I never quite got to really – I've, I've d- dabbled in stand-up, but it's such a lifestyle um, – it's such a lifestyle that, that goes along with it. In order to be successful, successful with it, you really have to commit to it in a way that I wasn't able to as someone who was um, getting married and then having children. You know, it just was not not there for me. Um and so it's a kind of like a, 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 it's a little bit of a regret and certainly like a, almost like a debt unpaid in my, in my heart. Right. You know, I've gotten to write for other stand up comedians and I've gotten to uh, do a lot of sketch and improv. Um, and then magic actually, uh, funnily enough, put me in stand up clubs. And I got to actually be, you know, I got to do, you know, half hour long sets in stand up clubs for stand up audiences. And I felt like really, um, rewarded by that because up until that point I'd, I'd hosted you know and I'd done you know 10 minutes and that kind of stuff um but never really gotten to, to um really just sit there with the audience and so um magic kind of brought it full circle for me but it's a weird circle's the wrong shape it's a really <laughs> weird weird shape it's a really weird shape that got yeah. me there because in New York uh improv you know anything in New York City, I feel like, is very uh, consuming into it, into, into it and unto itself. Yeah. So if you're stand-ups, you hang out with stand-ups, you go, to, you go hang out where stand-ups hang out. If you're in improv, you go to those places, you know. And the UCB scene in the uh, late 90s, early 2000s, I mean, you're doing improv, but also like Amy Poehler was my teacher. And like every writer from Senate Live and Conan... Um, and the Daily Show, we're all coming to drink beers in the same place, and I was getting to hang out with all of them. So, like, why would I leave that to go to start doing stand-up? Right. Um, I was I was in heaven, you know? And, um, and, yeah, I became a total comedy nerd because of it. Moving to Vegas, uh, following my wife, she was in Jersey Boys, um, you know, I, I got to get into Wayne Brady's show. He's doing a show at the Venetian, so I was doing improv, you know, for... 700 people in this sand showroom and it was amazing but then he he closed his show um when he got uh, started hosting that the game show that he hosts now and so he moved back to la and um in that time i was you know waitering catering trying to do stuff on the internet trying to do others you know trying tr- making numerous attempts to make my own improv show land and it kind of hit this wall where basically i've tried to make money you know Try to try to have success with improv. Not making money is the wrong word. Right. Try to have a a a some kind of stable stable show, you know, some way to actually um, pay the bills while doing improv. I've I've tried it in so many different capacities at different different times. You know, from multiple TV pilots to multiple attempts at shows in Vegas and everything else. 
And unfortunately, by working with Wayne Brady and being around other other people, you kind of realize that the, there's a there's a there has to be like a cult of personality that comes with making money from doing improv. You know, so when the Who's Line people tour, it's like you get to be around these guys you saw on TV. Mm-hmm. And so I realized I just was kind of hitting a wall with that. And then I started podcasting with my comedy partner. So we were doing as many podcasts as we were doing improv shows. And that was scratching a big itch for me. And I finally had an audience for my comedy. Um, and then from there, I got to start working with Penn and Teller. Um, and at first it was because it was just a comedy writer for their show on the Discovery Channel show. And that was the most exciting thing ever, you know? Uh, and the reason why I was such a valuable writer is because I knew nothing about magic. <laughs> so, like, in the writer's room, we'd be going over stuff and trying to write setups, per- kind of similar. Most people don't remember the Discovery Channel show, but, you know, it was them on their set, and so it was very similar to their, if you've seen the show, Bullshit. Yeah. Just writing different, different setups of those two talking to camera, and trying to write those things and then writing narration over clips. So so the template from Bullshit was there. I, I was familiar with the show. And uh, then writing, you know, taking the curse words out for Discovery Channel, you know, and, and trying to write and learning how to write for their voices. And that's where improv was such a great thing. Improv makes you master putting different voices in your skull and rolling around, rolling around in your head until they feel like you are or aren't speaking naturally to that voice, you know. So that turned around for me writing for Penn and Teller or writing for other stand-ups like Lisa Lampanelli or whatever that I've gotten the, the that I've been lucky enough to write for. Like you have to roll their voice around in your skull until you get it, you know, until it feels like you you can speak like that person does um, onto the page, right? And so um, writing for them was great. Then all of a sudden that show doesn't get renewed. There's a couple other TV pilots of Penn and Teller get to work on. In the meantime, he starts his podcast again, but he, he had his old radio host, Mike Goudeau, who, who I knew uh, from back in the day as well. His wife and my wife were in uh, Mama Mia together. Uh, you know, uh, he can't make a couple of Sundays, and so I end up filling in for him on the podcast. And so now I'm his podcast co-host. Um, I do so well enough that they just make me a second co-host. So that went really well. And again, that came from just knowing, like, you know, I had a favorite version of Penn's voice in my head, you know, and so I got to write for that voice and bring that voice out of him. And his 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 team, his management, his people ag- agreed. They liked when I got Penn into a certain mood or a certain place, uh, whether I was writing for him for TV or whether it's just talking to him on his podcast. And so that became like a valuable thing or whatever. So then we move over to Penn and Teller Fool Us. Penn and Teller Fool Us is happening. And then I don't get to write for him, but I get to write for Jonathan Ross and then Allison Hannigan. And there's this thing, right? So here I am. I've, I've always been writing for other voices. I, I'm actually content with it. Like, I, I don't feel this need to, like, shine individually. I, right. I, I As long as I am putting stuff out into the universe and it is causing laughter and enjoyment, I don't actually care whether I'm getting the credit or someone else is getting the credit. In fact, it's really kind of nice when, like, you don't have to shower or shave <laughs> and then these words these words get said by somebody else, you know you wrote them and it gets this big reaction and you're like, I didn't even have to do a sit-up or worry about what I look like, you know? Um, there's, there's something really nice about it. Uh, so in that process, though, I'm watching all these magicians and, and I, I, am, uh, I, get, I have a moment of, of arrogance, you know? Sure. Um, I'm, one of my jobs is to, I, I, I do the pre-interview for every contestant on Fool Us before the host talks to them for that little hunk that no one cares about. The little <laughs> hunk, 
while Penn and Teller talk to each other and try to figure out if they're going to bust the trick. <laughs> My job is to make sure that the host has something to talk about with that person while they're distracted and looking at Penn and Teller whether Penn and Teller know their <laughs> right. trick. Um, I have to try very hard to make sure that they know they're going to talk about four or five things to give us a chance to give us uh, the best shot at showing them off one more time to to the world before they turn and talk to Penn and Teller. And so I have to research all these people. And so I'm talking to person after person after person, and they're all making a living. They all are doing magic, and they're all, like, making a living. And in, and, and in magic, there's so many different ways to pay the bills as a magician than just being rich and famous. And, you know, what I just talked about with improv is, like, there's a lot of ways to do improv all the time, but there's no way to pay the bills doing it unless you're rich and famous. Right then people will watch you do improv. It's like a weird thing. Like we don't we don't put improvisers up on that pedestal. And so I was seeing like, oh, magic has this thing where like I don't it's, 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 it's check the ego. Like I don't have to be rich or famous to do this. But I can entertain and I can write and I can do all these things. Um and my comedy theory, you know, uh, two decades of comedy theory have to translate somewhere in this right like have to shine in some capacity in this you know so in a moment of arrogance in between one of the tapings i just turned to pen and i was like i should i can i should just learn like four tricks and then i can do this corporate shit that everybody else is doing right (laughs) i can just go in front of court because that was the other frustrating thing about like with with matt and mattingly you know the the co-host of my podcast like you met us when we did our cruise ship gig yeah and that was the one time that was the one time we got hired to do that and i thought we were excellent at it yes you know absolutely and and i was like why aren't they bringing in paul and i to do corporate gigs like they bring in magicians why aren't they bringing paul and i to go on cruise ships like they do with magicians and stand-ups like why why don't people like this like every time paul and i got into a room to entertain a crowd i felt like we did a great job mm-hmm. you know and the answer is that like they just don't want, no one wants to trust people coming in and making it all up yeah. no one wants to be like these guys these guys got it i don't know what they're going to say i don't know what they're going to do but they got it it's no one's job to be like go for it you know, yeah. it's everyone's job to be like, I know exactly what's going to happen. No one's going to get upset. No one's going to complain. <laughs> and here you go. So finally, I was like, oh, you know what? I can learn four magic tricks and I can finally get all this money that I've never been getting as an improviser. I can do corporate things and things like that. Well, that was wrong. <laughs> that was, you I was don't wrong say. about that. You don't say. I was very wrong about that. Because I didn't, because I was, I was arrogant and I wasn't, yes, there are so many different ways to make a to make some kind of living as a magician and and there are so many rules for all every which way you choose yeah. so if you want to be a strolling crazy awesome close up magician who's a plaything for the rich who just gets goes to parties and and gets paid a bunch of money to entertain just like 10 people at a time there's a whole lot of rules that go into making a living that way if you want to Get all that corporate money. If you want to go in front of all these corporations all the time, you know, for gatherings where everyone's, you know, taking a day off of work to be slammed in there and you're part of this agenda where you get paid, uh, there's all kinds of different rules on how to go about doing that. And I did not understand that. I thought, I'll learn some kick-ass magic tricks from some of the best magicians in the world, and that will carry me into make-a-living land uh, as, as a magician. And... um and I was uh, 
and I'm going to say, I'll, I'll say I was beautifully wrong at this point. Yeah. So what happens is, I do. I go to every friend I have in the magic me that I made from doing Fool Us and being around Penn and Teller, and, and totally whoring out my connection to Penn and Teller, I go up to every magician I kind of know and respect and say, will you teach me one trick? Will you teach me one trick? Uh, uh, and you don't have to teach me like the, the ins and outs of all of magic, just basically I'm going to learn it like an actor. You teach me the trick, blocking, lines, choreography... I will just learn to perform magic for that trick in and of itself, and I'll do that. And seven people said yes. That means I had seven routines. I could turn that into a show. And I did. And the way to trust myself to take such a gigantic crash course in magic was to let my comedy brain go on autopilot. And the way that would work is if I did it as a character and not as myself. Because I know from stand-up and how hard stand-up is, it takes forever for you to actually get to the to this weird duality of one, mm-hmm. I'm absolutely 100% honest in me. And two, you understand who that is and that perception and that perspective and what that perspective is that I want to hear you talk about anything. And I know how to laser jokes through that second lane. It that's why stand up is so hard and that's why it takes a lifetime of practice and commitment to make that happen. And so I knew that that was arrogant to just think that, it would, that I could get to that authentic place with magic. So I thought if I do it as a character and make it more theatrical, I know how to write for different voices. I'll create a big character for myself and write for that character. So as I learn seven different magic tricks, the writing will just digest its way through that filter for this big character. So, and, and so with Hillbill, which is the character you created... Where did yeah. the origins of that come from? Is it just, you were a white guy, let's play a caricature of a white guy and be a hillbilly? I, um, I, had, uh, I had done bad mentalism as a joke mm-hmm. for a couple of auditions and for this one prank show. Man, I'm gonna I'm gonna leave the um, I'll figure this out. There's a prank. On, there's a prank on YouTube somewhere where I prank an, a linebacker from the from the Steelers, where I do bad mentalism as part of a bad bachelor party, and there's a pseudo promotion for some Adam Sandler film. This is like Whoa. nine years ago or something. Um, so I was used to doing that, and so uh, the I remember I did it, and I told Penn that story, and Penn said. You know, for all the effort you put into doing bad mentalism, you could have just learned a goddamn trick. And that was a long time ago. It was a certain something I clocked. Um, and so uh, I just thought, uh, I'll. I basically thought it was like, wouldn't it be great if the dumbest guy in the room was end up being the most like powerful oh, and all knowing? Okay. Yeah, that's, yeah, okay, cool. Like the the number one rule of comedy is incongruity, right? Right. Like if you the law of it, right? So you need you need two different things. Um, an example that I always do is an improv exercise is a uh, uh, noble intention versus flawed nature. So I'll take uh, an exercise. I'll take I'll have people brainstorm like five or six personality flaws, and then I have them think of like important moments, proposing for a wedding, speaking at a funeral, that kind of stuff. And let your flawed nature corrupt everything you're saying, and it creates jokes. And you take those yeah. two forces and run them against each other. So I thought, really dumb hillbilly pulling off impossible mentalism was a good comedic equation. For sure, yeah. Yeah. 
That's awesome. And so, but then, and and so you developed this act, and you had a whole stage show for it. You had multiple um, performances as Hillbill, and you crowdfunded it as well. Um, yeah. And so talk a little bit about that process of developing this character now that you've created and finding a narrative for a show. Because seven tricks or stand-up don't necessarily need a narrative. They can, but they don't. But like the way you're crafting the show, I feel like it must have had to have a through line, some kind of story. Yeah, I think I both knew. I, I basically was like, well, I'm swinging for the fences. I might as well swing for every fence, you know? Uh, I mean, I definitely it was like an impossible task, but but certainly um, on paper the goal was like make a whole show. You're yeah. in Vegas, have people come and see the show, and maybe they'll see enough of what's there to be like, yes, this should graduate from this small theater uh, to a to a Vegas room somewhere. You know, I mean, I I didn't I don't think that I was optimistic that was going to be the result of it uh spoiler alert it that it didn't happen um uh but but i wanted the seeds to be there and i think the the only way i could kind of like conceive putting it all together it also was a way to again to rely on my strengths i had a big theater background and and so i was like well i one advantage i have over the average magician is that i know kind of what it means to take up people's time you know right and i just thought um, and one of the things, you know, is, as a podcaster, you kind of go like, um, if I'm bored, the audience is definitely bored. Yes. So I need to move. I need to pivot fast. And so while I'm making the show, I'm like, I don't think that the audience is just going to love, you know, whatever. And in the case of making fundamentalism, prediction after prediction after prediction. So I literally was like, my wife's a choreographer, uh, and just a dancer. So why don't I just break it up and, and kind of, uh, reset the palette a little bit and so i put in some dance numbers and things like that into it and then she was like well then we should have them dress like in the hillbilly thing too and so then they're dressed in the hillbilly <laughs> thing so then then i see someone who just put up a show and i see a set and i was like and i knew the play was ending and i was like what are you doing with that set and they're like well, we're gonna get rid of it and i was like oh, i want it so next thing you know i'm renting a set and so i have a, a hillbilly set and the hillbilly dancers and i do the whole thing you know so uh it just kind of snowballed, but I just, that was the part that I liked a lot. I wasn't scared. I was scared of the magic part. I wasn't scared about the show part and putting a production together. So I just went for it. And that was enough where I didn't get the result that I wanted. Again, I wasn't optimistic about that, but Piff the Magic Dragon saw that show and said, well, you know, that you're, you're going you're gonna to grow as a magician, but you have an act. And I like that act. So uh, then he had me open for him for the next year and a half. I played comedy clubs and theaters opening for him. And I did like, you know, a hundred something shows opening for Piff. Well, yeah, sure. And so, and you had dropped the hillbill before Piff, right? Am I remembering that correctly? During. During. No, no, during. no, during. Because that was the whole thing. It's like, I thought I can go up on stage, play a character, come off stage, and then let people know I'm playing a character. Right. I guess there's, as soon as I started doing it, I suddenly was presented with the conflict of either dropping the act part or... Becoming the Larry the Cable Guy of magic, <laughs> where I'd have to be in character every time someone time. talked to me. Yeah. But what was slowly happening is when I going out and opening up for Piff, even though he's a magic dragon, I was going to comedy clubs at first, and um, and people were so people would come up to me like, so where in Appalachia are you from? You know, and I'd be like, oh, <laughs> Jersey, you know, and trying to explain to them that I was playing a character just was disappointing people left and right. 
Huh. And and again, I didn't get into this. You know, I, this wasn't like I was like, no, people must understand my vision of Hillbill. They must take this in. You know, I wasn't. It was a thing just to get me through the show. So I was kind of like, you know, went to Piff because I was still mostly performing opening for him. And I said, you know, I'm thinking about dropping the Hillbill part, but you know. He was like, well, you have an act, and he obviously is a, is a magic dragon, so he wasn't about to tell me, like, you can't do a character. Um, <laughs> right. You know, so so he was more like, don't become like everybody else. You know, you have to keep something of what this is, you know. And so we went back and forth, and so I kept the overalls because it still does exactly what – I basically just kept the whole act except dropped everything with a false bio. Right. And so now um, I kept the – and so I came up with the concept of being a mind noodler while being hillbill and i love the concept of noodling and and how just so american and rugged and <laughs> dumb it is you know yeah. to shove your actual use your own arm as bait and shove it into catfish's mouth as a form of fishing yeah um and the idea that i'm doing that to people's minds was something that was so visceral yeah. and it keeps that dirty that 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 blue collar that that working class you know that working classness to doing really sophisticated magic tricks and so that that incongruity you know, those two, those two forces comedically are still there. And so he said to me, he just goes, no one else is doing magic and overalls. So don't lose that. So I was like, okay, I'll keep the overalls. I'll keep the mind noodler part and I'll just start calling myself my own name. And, uh, people who knew how successful the hillbill act was going was like, you're crazy. Don't drop that. It's, <laughs> it's working. You know? Um, even my wife was like, I don't, what do you mean? Who's Matt Donnelly? The mind? Who's Matt Donnelly? Who cares? And I was like, just trust me, you know, let me try it. And Piff again, so generous. Just let me figure it out. Opening for him. Um, and then, you know, I start performing and sure enough, no one, it d- didn't bother anybody. Nobody's like, I don't get it. You're from yeah. Jersey. You wear overalls. What's going on? You know, you're from Vegas or whatever. And so yeah. people don't care. They just, one is that I don't look like a guy who should perform in a fancy suit. <laughs> so me performing in overalls is still casting, still yeah. theater. You know, still doing whatever, so it still works. And uh, I, there's, I've always been a, even when I was an actor doing commercials and stuff, I was always cast as, you know, construction workers, bartenders, that kind of stuff. So, uh, uh, just sticking with casting, I just go out there in my overalls, do my act, and everybody just takes it as it is. That's awesome. I, I love the fact that you went on this evolution, especially since because of when I met you, I got to watch it from start to finish. It's pretty cool to see where you ended up, especially since you got to do so many shows with Piff and he kind of took you under his wing because he's been doing those shows for ages. And yeah, it's just really cool to see how your magic has grown, how much more confident you were when you, the last time you did a show in New York, in New Jersey rather, and I came to see you, like it was just, you had this energy about you and you might've even still been Hillbill then, but there was this energy to the show that yeah. like, you could see the confidence because you felt better about the stuff you were doing. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. I mean, that's what, as an improviser, to actually go in knowing you have material, <laughs> to go in and, not, and not, not shaping the arc, but actually knowing what the arc is, you know, and being, you know, and of course on the side, like, you know, being an actor in high school and college and stuff like that, like being part of productions, like it was to, to get that feel, that theatrical feel into a space that people don't know they're coming to experience theater. Um, it's like a nice secret weapon to have. And, uh, yeah, I really love it. Uh, it's, it's, it's a, it's a fun thing. Plus, um, you know, I, I really devoured everything in improv that I could devour, you know, and it, and it's, and I'm 42 and I started when I was 15 
And so um, I didn't realize that I kind of had hit like a, a wall with it from a um, artistic standpoint, you know? Yeah, totally. And so to, you know, I'm, I'm very, I really get the, I'm really experienced with maybe like what a child star would experience where like I am both getting to do really amazing shows in really cool places while also still very much still being a student of it. And I'm always quick to point that out even in my podcast, giving opinions and stuff. And I say like, well, I'm still very much a student of magic. I'm still learning a lot about it as I go on. Um, but it's exciting. It's fun to be new at stuff and, and to make headway and stuff. It's, it's really nice. Yeah. I feel like when, like when you've learned, you feel like you've learned everything. It's hard for something like that to stay exciting. I think the reason I've created so many podcasts over the years and like I have four shows now is because there's a part of your brain when you're a creator that's like, I have something to say about something. And I think I can actually do something with that it's, and learn something in the process. Um, and, and I think that's important to hold on to. The minute you lose that want to be better, learn more, do better, like why even do the thing anymore, right? The whole idea is to keep learning and keep growing and keep changing. Oh, for sure. Yeah. And, and I think, yeah, I, like I said, like I, I, I can say yes to that without knowing that I was in that rut. Right. You know, um, I didn't realize it. I just wasn't, you know, because uh, improv is still so wide open all the time and doing it in different venues is so wide open all the time. Um, but the thing about gaining an audience or trying to get people to show up at stuff, it's certainly from like a getting butts and seats perspective that um, my, you know, reputation for whatever it is amongst the people that I could reach, people were aware that I was pretty proficient at improv. So going to see me do an improv show wasn't the most um, exciting thing for people. Everyone knew I wasn't a magician. <laughs> so <laughs> to go see me risk my ass uh, and uh, maybe even knowing that other magicians would be in the audience to kind of take it in uh, was something that people found very exciting. <laughs> so that a lot more people come out to see those, those early shows uh, than my improv shows for sure. Um, I want to talk about Fool Us a little bit, which I love. Um, some sure. of my friends have been on it. You, of course, have been on it. And yes. I, I want to talk because you released the clip. It's on your YouTube of you, the longer clip of you being on it. Was that weird for you as someone who wrote for that show for so long to now be the guest and be across from Penn, who you, who's a close friend who you've known for ages? Or was it just exciting? It was. Uh, it was. It was all of that. It was all of that. <laughs> it was. It was weird. It was exciting. You know. I mean, in order to get work as a magician, you you know the kind of you know. As a discoverer of being a hillbilly and being a very comedic person and someone who's thriving in comedy clubs, I basically found out that I wasn't going to be a strolling plaything for the rich type magician, and I was absolutely not going to get hired for corporate stuff at all. Right. And so, when I said that that was I was delightfully wrong and that was kind of a lie. That's what I'm talking about. Is I very much put myself on a path of of very similar to the same rut I was in in improv, where I have to get myself into larger platforms if I want to do the style of show I want to do. Um, uh, it's just still at least more reliable or believable, still going about it through magic than an improv at this phase in my life, you know? Um, and so I basically was like, I kind of have to get on TV and uh, basically America's Got Talent has been kind of, you know, using, using Fool Us as a, uh, as, a, as a recruiting ground for many, many years. And so I yeah. just thought that's what I'll do, you know? 
Um, now I, I'm still not. Uh, I could have maybe pushed to try to get on America's Got Talent this year, but I haven't. America's Got Talent did reach out to me when it was exciting when I was first doing the Hillbow show, but I literally had done only six shows when they asked <laughs> me to come audition. Right. So that didn't go great. I was I certainly wasn't ready. <laughs> um, six shows into my magic career to go on America's Got Talent, but I just thought let's try to get on TV. So I knew that part, you know, and I knew that obviously if I I. It wasn't as easy as people would think, but I just but it, but it is it is certainly a lot easier for right. me to get on that show uh, than than most people. So I want to make sure I hedge my bets properly on that. Because um, sure. basically, I waited until every year behind the scenes. I I, I know this show like like no others because I'm I, I as the as the writer for the host and the pre interview person. I'm just around the host constantly and then also I'm there around there's no barrier between me and the executive producers I'm just around the director right. and their executive producers all the time helping to put shows together so when the host shows up we're just plugging them in and I'm there to just make sure they hit the ground running so even though it's kind of like a low level position I have access to the upper echelons of it and then on top of that I'm friends with Penn and Teller from before this show so even though my position doesn't actually directly interact with Penn and Teller I get to go up to them in between shows or see them in the hallway and I get their perspective on everything too. So I have a very unfair vantage point of the whole show before sure. even being a contestant. So I know every year we need 60 magicians and every year 52 are going to get on the air. And every year it's a, it is a uh, colossal task to make sure every episode has enough kick-ass magic for television and magic that kicks ass in real and in, in stage does not necessarily kick ass on television and there's so many rules that go along with it. I always put out the cooking for te- cooking for television analogy. Learning yeah. how to cook amazing food for TV judges is different than cooking an awesome meal at home. Yeah. And the same goes for magic. Same goes for magic for television. So I knew a lot of the rules before throwing my hat in the ring. And even that being said, I still don't have <laughs> the most flawless execution of television magic in my appearance. Um, but I waited until there was a moment of frustration because there always is. When they're frustrated with... You know, do we have too many foreign acts on the show? Do we have to do we have too many just you know whatever old season pros? Do we have young people? You know, minorities. Uh, we we want to represent as many different flavors as possible in that show. And even though that 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 number is finite of sixty, it's actually constantly a mixed um, ranking and recruiting of it. Even though they have even deadlines for submissions, those deadlines it's a lie. If we're taping on the last day. And you waited, and also you send them a kick-ass trick the day before we taped the last day. Someone's going to get bumped and set home, and you're going to be brought into tape oh, wow. for that show, and they'll, and they'll figure out the rest because they just want to make the best show possible at all at all times, you know. Sure. Um, and so it is that kind of there's co- there's a constant voice in the back of their heads all the time of is it enough? No matter what. So I waited for a moment of frustration of them talking about not having enough uh, comedy people, enough funny people on the show. And that's when I made my move of like, you know, I've been touring with Piff. I don't know if you want to take a look at my stuff, you know? And I waited for that, waited for that little moment to make it like a casual play of like whatever. And they're like, well, yeah, send us, send us, you got stuff, send it. They were skeptical, you know, they're like, <laughs> sure. You know? Yeah. All right. Writer guy, whatever. Cause I basically, yeah, I basically started as an intern basically for them more than even less than a writer, you know? So, uh, um, I, but I sent them stuff and then I was touring with Piff and then, you know, um, uh, Piff gave them, gave them a great recommendation and backed me up, uh, and also said that he would be in my film package if they took me 
right? And so if you watch mm-hmm. the clip, Piff is in my package or whatever. Yeah. There. And so um, the one trick they liked that they thought was the most comedically strong and had no cards in it, that's a big factor for that show, by the way. <laughs> no cards. You have, you're three times more likely to get on the show if you're trying to do a trick that doesn't have cards in it. That's, that's <laughs> right. my little tidbit for everybody listening. Um, <laughs> everyone has just amazing card stuff, and we don't, we'll never do a show that's just a bunch of card tricks. So all we're doing is looking for, you know, if you, if you have a card trick, it's gr- but ha- it has to be, something has to be so unique or so kick-ass about it to make it on the air. Uh, versus if you just switch it. And you see so many tricks. If you look, knowing this tidbit now, go back and watch shows. See how many things where yeah. they're like, oh, that could be done with cards. And you're like, yeah, they clearly just switched from cards to this other thing, a tarot deck, you know, a list of <laughs> occupations, you know, whatever, like a, a bunch of blank cards with occupations on it, you know, that kind of thing. It's all because that used to be a card trick. Um, so I get my, I have a trick that uh, 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 doesn't have that. And it's a weight prediction trick where I end up, again, going through that working class thing and ends up with a prediction and duct tape on my chest that I tear off. So um, uh, what I don't tell the producers is that Penn taught me that trick. (laughs) Because I can't earnestly go on Fool Us to fool Penn and Teller with a trick that they taught me. Right, of course. If they knew that, then you can't fool them, obviously. I can't. And the only thing that I have going for me is that Penn will see that and be like, there's no way he's just going to do the trick that I taught him. There must be something else to it. This motherfucker, right? So they'll feel <laughs> right. fucked with when they see me. So they'll still right. feel messed with. It won't be like a disappointment. They'll be like, what's going right. on? Uh, so I have that going on. And Penn and Teller don't know who the contestants are. Do not. They can't. By rules of the game show, they can't know who the contestants are. Right. So I... Uh, uh, I play that, play my hand, and they say, do you think Penn and Teller will be familiar with it? They've seen your act. I go, well, they certainly will see an early version of it. They've certainly seen an early version of it, and, and I know that they'll be slightly familiar with it, but, you know, it's evolved. That, that is true. That was, that, yeah. was a, that was a hedging truth, but it is a, tr- it is a truth. Um, but I know that in terms of fooling Penn and Teller, that's not what the show's about. Right. The, the producers need to make sure, like, having enough people that fool Penn and Teller is a box to be checked for the season. Like, yes, we should have around one or two foolers a show. Yeah. But, uh, you know, if, if Penn and Teller never get fooled, that would certainly be a horrible show to watch on television. But in terms of, like, actually, like, each person being, like, an eager contender for a foolish trophy is not their concern. And people go on that show knowing that. Like, hey, this won't fool Penn and Teller, but it kicks ass on television and it'll get me hired for a bunch of stuff. Yeah. And I'm going to do it. And they go like, great, you know, and we're, we're, everyone's all in agreement on that. So I was putting myself in that category that I was an American magician, which we're running shorter on every, every season and that I was doing comedy, which we were running shorter on every season. Um, and that I did have a relationship with them that that we were going to be open about, uh, and that was going to make it exciting for the audience that, that their friend was going to come on and surprise them and mess with them was an angle that I knew was going to be a different flavor than other stuff that we were putting on the show. So thinking from the show's perspective, I was kind of letting everyone figure those factors out with me. And, and so I got the green light that way. Yeah. I mean, it, it, me, someone having spent time with you and knowing you watching that clip and watching Penn's face as you walk out on stage and like his not frustration, but his like, what the hell, what's going on kind of thing. Like, it's fun. It's fun to see that because you, people know you guys have a relationship. Yeah, I wish I had, like, in, in that moment, I wish I had a, a fool or something that might fool them at, at right. my disposal. Because <laughs> that is that, that's the look. The look is like, wait a minute. What's going on is here? He, 
why is he here? You know, and and if he's going to try to get a fucking trophy out of us after watching us, you know, for whatever things it, it was. And then I go into the trick, and as soon as I start going into it, Penn knows it's the trick. Yeah. Uh, and so he's very relaxed, and that's yeah. why he's very funny in the clip. Yeah. Um, I always uh, the joke is that uh, this is true, but but the they've they've never watched all those times they've had seen people interviewed while they're talking about whether or not they fooled them. I'm the only interview that Penn and Teller just got to watch. They yeah. got to actually just watch a contestant get interviewed before they talked to me. And for me, they just let me talk long enough that they uh, uh, they got what they needed for television, and then yeah. Penn and Teller piped in. But the uh, uh, some a friend of mine was sitting uh, in the studio audience, and when Penn and Teller are walking back to their seats to figure out how I did the trick, Teller starts launching into all the factors that he was keeping track of, and that's what they do. They both launch right. into the factors they keep track of, and they make sure they get the order of the trick correct so they know the steps. And that kind of stuff. And Teller's going into his half of it. And Penn's just going, Teller, shut up. Shut up. Teller, shut up. We have everything. We have everything. Shut up. Uh, so yeah. so uh, my double bluff was not remotely successful no. uh, at all. My, 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 my one little double bluff was not successful. But it also made me go through the whole show as a contestant. Yeah. And I had to go through all the things. So I got to talk to my segment producer. I had to get my you know wardrobe approved. I had to go through my, my, my rehearsal in the... In the uh, conference room and then my tv blocking rehearsal i got input from the directors and all the producers and the magic consultant mike close you know mike close gave me stuff in in the in the rehearsal room he's the judge on the show since johnny thompson passed away Mm -hmm. um he gave me stuff that i still use in my act you know yeah and and it was really fun to put my money where my mouth was because i used to say to anybody you want to try to get on fool us because you're going to get feedback from like five or six people that do nothing but try to make every magician radiate on television. Yeah. So you're going to get feedback that you'll never get any time of time in your life. So like whether you even get on the air, it'd be worth just to get your trick through that, through that machine. You want to do it. And, uh, and that held true for my own material that I, I, was, I, wasn't, I wasn't bluffing. When I went through, I was like, wow, my tr- this trick is significantly better for having gone through this process uh, with them. And it has stuff that I still use on the road today. Did you have to write for yourself <laughs> or, or for your episode? Uh, yes. But the thing <laughs> is we write, we, we write out of order. Uh-huh. Uh, I mean, we, we, we tape in out of order. And so, um, uh, but yeah, you, you basically the like, welcome back to Penn and Teller Fool Us. Let's meet our next potential fooler. There's, I write 60 versions of that line every season. Um, and, uh, and so I knew that I was writing my own version for that. So I, I think I, I think I just put in a joke thing like, all right, let's meet this next dipshit or something like that, and just made the producers laugh. Sure. But I couldn't, I couldn't, I, I didn't want to be too arrogant, so I didn't write anything cute for myself. Sure, but yes, I did actually write my own intros, uh, which is hilarious. But amazing. I did nothing cute with them because I was just trying to keep it professional. It was a weird thing. Um, like another weird thing is like um, uh, as as a as the writer for Allison, I have access to everywhere. I walk in everywhere. I walk in every rehearsal. I can walk into wherever they keep stuff. I if I I need stuff for anything uh, or if I think else I might need to know anything I get to walk up to whoever and find that information out um, the contestants are not allowed to see what other contestants are up to contestants aren't allowed to see other contestants props because some of those props are you know um, their most sacred secrets you know and so I was stopped by the props person to be like hey as a contestant you can't come in the props room but the props room is right next to the production office so I had to go through where the props are to talk to the showrunner and things like that so I was like well uh, 
And also, like, I'm already, I actually sit in the rehearsals for three days going into the shooting, so I watch every single magician do their act. So it's not like you don't uh, know. And it, no, and it helps me write their intros. It yeah. helps me write their, it helps me write their stuff. That's why I'm there. So the proudest person stopped me and was like, you, you can't be in here. And I was like, uh, well, I, I can. I mean, I've been in this room every year. And he's like, yeah, but now that you're a contestant, you can see other people's props. And I was like, I, I've also watched all their rehearsals. Like, I, I don't, I don't have to tell you. I basically was like, go over my head on this. Go, go to the showrunner. But I'm not here to try to scout any other buddy else's material. And then I also want to be like, you haven't seen my act yet. But once you do, you'll realize there's no way I'm trying to steal anything intellectual right. from any other magician. Right. <laughs> there's, there's not a chance you're going to see me trying to, to figure some shit out. Uh, uh, so it was like a weird moment of like. Look, you're right, but also I'm not. I'm right. Like I have to do the, my other job, which is right for this entire show and make every contestant look good. So I don't know what to tell you, you know. And basically, went to the showrunner. The showrunner was like, uh, "Just stop caring about it. <laughs> don't don't stop him. Don't stop Matt from doing his job." Nice. Uh, it was how that all shook out. Yeah. So it was weird, but yeah. So I know this show now in every conceivable facet. Sure. Yeah, and I'd imagine you, like, and I, I'm sure that strengthened your performance on the show, knowing, like, it must have felt safe to do your act, at least to some degree, because you're so familiar with everything around you. Yeah. I mean, it was nerve-wracking going into it. I wasn't on the first taping day or anything. Yeah. So it was very distracting to be thinking about it and constantly strategizing for it while also trying to do my other job. Um, yeah. So when it came time to actually go downstairs into the basement where they, where they keep the contestants, they actually put me on last on an evening taping. So I could go through all the tapings, and I basically, because um, I prep Allison right before she interviews, uh, I basically, but she also has the truck in her ear, so we were all prepared for me to go in the basement, two contestants ahead of me. Um, by the time I hit the basement, it was like a, like a exciting and a relief. It was like, oh, good. I'm finally clocking out from multitasking and just focusing on performing, and let's go do it. And uh, and that was great. And then the interesting thing again is the, is the comedy experience. Is that that particular taping was running long, and I knew the acts that we had. You know that that the the energy was a little low in the room, right? When I was coming up in there, and so I basically was like, oh, not only can I go out there and do my act, but like there's there's a thousand people in the studio audience, you know, and I'm I'm gonna I think I can light these people up, you know, yeah, and and. I know that may sound arrogant to hear now, but it was like, it's a familiar feeling in the room when you're in the lineup of, of whether we're doing improv or stand up or whatever, where the, you feel like the room could use a little like kick in the jaw. And you're yeah. like, I think, I think I actually have what it takes to kick them in the jaw, like a, to, to wake everybody up a little bit. And, uh, and then when Penn and Teller started reacting just by seeing my name pop up and started before we were, we were even rolling tape, you know, them looking at me like, what is going on? And the audience started to really feel that energy in the room. And so, um, if you go watch the clip, it, it goes over pretty well on TV. It went over very well uh, at the taping. Like, it, it, it really crushed in the room. And it was really, it was one of the, honestly, it was just one of the greatest feelings I've ever had as a performer. Um, it was really, really awesome. That's excellent. That's fantastic. Um, I want to shift the conversation now to where you're going with uh, mind noodling as Matt Donnelly. Um, obviously, you're not performing right now, as nobody's really performing anywhere right now. <laughs> yes, no one as is. You, yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Um, but do you have? I know, and I know you were on tour with Piff for a while, and like that you would love to to work with Piff again. But do you have any plans for either a Matt Donnelly solo thing or next steps for your magic? That's the hard part. I had just started to tour more on my own, and I mm-hmm. had about five or six uh, venues lined up on my own, um, and I had like a potential for like I had a list of like basically like. 13 um different different theaters and stuff that i could have played on my own um and there's also talk of another kind of um bigger show that i could have been a part of mm-hmm. and all of it got put on hold uh at the start of the 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 pandemic um i don't know what's going to come back and not come back when it's all shaken up um sure, i am okay with waiting it out and figuring it out i definitely love the idea of performing magic live um i'm not like a uh, i'm a comedian at heart and not a magician at heart mm-hmm. you know i'm still a student of magic and, I'm, and i still have a growing love for it uh but i feel no um there's no inertia in me trying to figure out how to do virtual magic shows sure. or trying to become like an instagram magician um which is its own uh, genre and 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 people are amazing at it, you know. Right. Entertaining for that that tiny screen for a short amount of time, it's really neat. Uh, but I don't I don't have that in me because performing live is is, is it secretly scratches that comedy itch. Right. Uh, as I as I as I've gotten better, I mean, right before and I kind of had like a big summit with Penn one on one about like what does it take to actually get my magic to the next level? Like I'm feeling confident and funny, and Penn brought me in when Teller was still having, having back surgery. They did holiday shows, Penn and Friends, and I was, me, Piff, and Matt King were the three magicians uh, selected to fill in for Teller, and I got to do my stuff uh, at the Penn and Teller Theater, and that was like a dream come true. And then that led to like a heart-to-heart of like, I really, how do I get, I, my comedy and stage presence or, or is, is that a, at least a very comfortable spot, but how do I get actual magic uh, to, a, to a better place where I can I can keep playing theaters and stuff and so we had a big long chat and it's not like there was like a you know just this one thing but it was uh we basically kind of had like this hour-long coffee where i i basically just took all these challenges from Penn, and i was really looking forward to just getting out on the road and 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 trying to grow and so uh that's still what i want to do and so that's on pause and i still have a, a really awesome uh comedy partner and and really awesome community in my podcasts so i'm still Speaking of my podcast, which is giving me a sense of community and a sense of performing uh, while I wait out the pandemic, um, but uh, yeah, so I'm I, I'm on hold like everybody else, and, and I'm I'm okay with that. Um, I'm still reading a ton of uh, magic books right now, and I'm practicing weird little things in my garage. Um, but I'm 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 just uh, I'm in no rush. I want to get it right. I want to get it right when I had that conversation with Penn. Um, I want to get it right when I went on Fool Us. You know, it's like I want, I want to just, uh, uh, I'm, I'm ambitious, but not blindly. And so uh, this pandemic's been, been put a lot of things on hold, and a lot of bigger things than me, uh, like, like the NBA and the Olympics and things like yeah. that. So I think it's wrong to be like, but my magic career. Um, <laughs> so, you know, uh, uh, I'm, I'm content. Content's maybe the wrong word, but I, I can bear down and just ride the same wave that everybody else is forced to ride. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't feel a need to pivot. 
I've done anything and everything, you know, in between all of these amazing gigs that we've discussed on this, I've also been, you know, waiters and, and, and catering things and, um, you know, forced to dress up in weird costumes for corporate events and things like that. So like, uh, all, all of those, I'm willing to do anything to provide my family. I'll, I'll start driving a truck for, you know, delivery company or something. I don't, I don't care about that aspect. If, if the doors aren't, aren't there, then I'll do whatever while this pandemic's going on. Um, and I just can't wait for it to be functionally fantastic for live performance again. And when it is, I'll, I'll take the same swings I want to take right now. Yeah, I mean, and I get that. I feel like, well, podcasting is one of the few things that can kind of still happen regardless. A lot of other entertainment is just on hold to every level. Um, but, I mean, you do live with an audience, you two young kids. I was curious because <laughs> as a kid, as a kid, I loved magic. I was astonished by it. And so now as an adult, I have a ton of friends who are magicians. And when they do their magic, like my, I revert to a five-year-old. Like, I don't want to know how it works. I just fall in love with it again. And so I'm curious, being the father of two lovely young kids, do they have yeah. any interest in your magic whatsoever or could they care less? One definitely does, and one definitely does not. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and 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 one I was you know I, I was really honest with him because I was I'm, I was like you even when I was running for Penn and Teller I still kind of slowly but surely started to find out how certain magic tricks were done and then working on Fool I started to learn how a lot of magic tricks were done but I was I'm still you know you'll hear when I do I do behind the scenes episodes on Abracababble of every Foolish episode right and you'll still see how much I'm blatantly fooled by stuff that magicians are not fooled by yeah. Um, and I love it. I still love it. And I was the absolutely the for a close up magician. I was the best audience ever. I just <laughs> loved it. Loved that sense of something impossible uh, happening around me. So, um, and so as my kids started to ask stuff, I said, you know, um, Teller has this beautiful quote about magic, where he says the secrecy in magic isn't important. Right. Uh, secrets are kept because they're ugly, and when they're and and it makes the magic beautiful. If revealing the secret were beautiful, we would reveal the secret to magic. Every trick that we did. Right. Um, and if you, you know, where there's a fantastic version of that, if you go see Penn and Teller's version of Cups and Balls, is this beautiful version of them revealing how a trick is done. Yeah. You know? Um, and uh, and so when my son wanted to know how stuff worked, I'd be like, listen. You know, like we went to, we were at Disneyland, and uh, there's a magic shop there, and they were yep. making these, uh, this red light zoom around the room kind of thing. And I was like, he's like, I want to know how the trick does. Can you buy it for me? And I, and I, I, I literally pulled him outside. As the matchup, I was like, listen, if I buy this trick for you, you're going to hate it. You're going to hate how this trick works. And you're, and this is the thing is that you and I are going to, we're going to look at magic and daddy's a magician and you're going to look at different magic. If you want to know how it's done, chances are you're going to be disappointed in what you hear how it's done because the answer is never magic. So if you want, if I'm, if you want that trick, I'm going to tell you how it's done first and you're going to tell me whether or not you want to buy it. You want me to buy that trick. Or you can just leave it alone and just think that you just saw a light fly around the room and that was awesome and we can just walk away right now. And just as I said, that Goofy walked by. <laughs> and my kid goes, Goofy! And then just ran away from the magic shop and towards Goofy. And I was like, oh, good. Thank God. A conversation for, a conversation for another day. But that conversation has been ongoing. And so slowly but surely, some stuff I was like, I revealed to him and some stuff I go, or some of lot someone's asked me how stuff's done. I go, I really don't know. Daddy does not know how that trick is done. Uh, but he's learning, he's the Penn and Teller magic kit. And so he's just getting through some tricks now. And my oldest is starting to ex express some, uh, real interest in it and, and, and understanding a performance of it, which is neat. That's cool. Um, yeah, it is neat. 
And and because I know at least with so, magic, for the most part, that's going to be more approachable for your children than maybe your podcasting for a little while at least. Considering, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, because of like story. babysitting. Because of babysitting issues, they've been brought into my studio many times, and they have no interest whatsoever. They're never like, "Where? How can I get to a studio? Right. How can I talk into a microphone?" Which no, is they have good. no, no podcast ambitions whatsoever. Well, because I know you joke on the ice cream social a ton, like because you you are pretty candid a lot with with your boys and their lives. Like you're sometimes a little, you're not sure if you're excited or terrified for them to hear the stuff you've said over the years because you're just being, it's not like you said anything bad, but you're being honest about their lives. No, I'm being honest. Yeah. yeah. Sometimes my kids are pricks. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> so like they'll, they'll go back in time and hear me complaining about them. Yeah. I don't, you know, it's just a, yeah, there's, there's no way to get parenting hundred percent. Right. And, and, and there's going to be missteps. They're going to hate me for something no matter what. So yeah. I might as well kind of understand where they're coming from than not understand where they're coming from. So yeah, if 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 me being too candid comes back and bites me in the ass in time, uh, I won't be surprised, uh, and I'll figure out how to handle it. I guess. <laughs> uh, do you have a favorite magic trick that you don't perform and don't know how it's done? Like something you've seen that you just love, that that uh, that always astonishes you. Oh, that's a great question. Um, I I uh, you know I got to work with Johnny Thompson before he passed away. And uh, he did this trick that Penn hated <laughs> called the egg bag. I think I've heard of this uh, one. Yeah. And then, uh, because Fools Needed Material, they decided that would be a good entry point. So Penn and Teller learned the egg bag with the intro of like, we hate this trick, but Johnny <laughs> loves it and got it forever. And so um, just this past birth, my, pa- my birthday was like a month ago. My wife was like... Uh, Asked, asked RJ what to get me for my birthday, and RJ was like, get him an egg bag. <laughs> uh, and uh, and so I got it, and then uh, uh, I watched Johnny's routine of it from the 70s on some TV show, and then I watched Penn & Teller's version of it, and uh, it it is, uh, I don't understand how they do it. I don't I don't get it. And so uh, That's great. It's, it's, it's something I'm tackling right now. Like, it's, it's published in Johnny's book, so... I just started reading up on it, uh, but I still don't know how they do everything in it. Um, yeah, that's awesome. There's a guy. Yeah, yeah. There's also there's a guy coming up on. Um, there's, it's little things with magic. So there's a guy coming up on the upcoming season. So I can't say who it is because it's not revealed yet. Right. But he does a trick involving uh, basically things uh, switch place uh, from like a deck of cards and, and thumb cuffs, and mm-hmm. all of a sudden these his hands go from being locked in thumb cuffs uh, to the thumb cuffs being inside a card box that someone else has been holding the entire time. Oh, wow. And that involves, and that involves switching and that involves weight and that involves and, and it's with audience volunteers. And it's just fucking impossible, you know? <laughs> uh, and it's just, that stuff's so neat. There's some stuff that's just done with speed that I don't understand. You know, you can go on the internet and see like, you know, the ice cream cone guy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 So if you just YouTube like crazy magic ice cream going guy or whatever, you'll find this clip and it's whatever country it is, not in America, but it's a guy going to serve an ice cream cone from tongs. Yeah. And he just keeps it's the best. Taking the ice cream away from the guy as he hands it to him. And there's all these different ways he does it. And it's a total magic trick, it's a total magic routine, but the guy's honestly an ice cream salesman. Yep. And he's honestly selling ice cream in this foreign country. And he's turned into this gigantic magic bit. And those are the kind of things where like 
I guess each move philosophically, I could know how it's done, but like, holy cow, how do you do that? And like, how do you master that routine? And as an improviser, I'm fascinated because every spectator must do something a little different. And so how do you, how are you, how are you ready for every move in a non-sequential order to do this flawless and amazing and jaw-dropping magic routine that's based on handing over ice cream from your ice cream stand? You know, those things just, those are the things that I just, uh, just fills me with such a childlike uh, wonder and joy. Well, yeah. And that one for me specifically tickles me because there's a minor level of inconvenience involved too. And that's equally funny. Like watching the patron get more and more like, are you serious? Every time. And like every time you think it's about to end, it doesn't. And it It has like, it has like four false endings. And every time. Yes. All the layers of like, Oh, you got me. Wait, no, seriously though. Oh gosh. When does this end? (laughs) I don't know if I'm not want the ice cream anymore. You know? (laughs) Yeah. Uh, all of that's just fantastic. Um, Ice Cream Social's been around a while now. You guys have tried so many different things. You've done live shows. You've done the Bucket Show live. You, you know, you've recorded countless episodes at this point, uh, an insane number of episodes. Do you, um, do you have any innovative plans for the show? Are there things that you want to try that you haven't yet done? I know that like you have a very successful Patreon, um, that goal of super Satan, which I love hearing you guys yes. talk about. Um, yes. But are there like major things that you want? Cause you've done scoop fest and you'll do it again and you've done live events. Like are there, is there something else you've been dreaming that you haven't been able to do yet that you really want to try for ice cream social or in podcasting in podcasting in general, I think, but, Ice cream social. In podcasting, too. yeah. I think I, I think uh as as someone who does almost like a morning radio, as someone who does basically stream of conscious stuff, uh I get jealous of the people who put together these really kick ass, like short, like six to ten episode, really polished series mm-hmm. with different voices on it and beds of music and things like that. And I would love to uh tackle like a topic uh where where the series itself would kind of hold up as a um as a reference or a, 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 a tome of, of a particular topic, for sure. Cool. Yeah, that'd be great. Yeah, there's so many of those. I have a friend who's writing a fiction podcast that's like found footage, audio clips, and commercials, and it's about this possibly haunted hotel. And like, I could have never thought of something like that. And I was lucky enough to do some VO for it, but like, I look at him and I'm like, how do you think of this stuff? It just, that kind of stuff is always astonishing to me. Yeah, I have a love for uh, my. You know, my father is a trial uh, public defender and a trial lawyer. Oh and yeah. My uh, my grandmother was a state supreme court justice in New Jersey, and my and my grandfather was an appellate judge. I've ever. Uh, uh, I have a secret guilty pleasure for like um, court cases. Mm-hmm. I think I think if I were to do a short series, I'd like to way to basically combine my passion for comedy and court cases in some way. I don't know if that's like Lenny Bruce or something <laughs> along those lines, but I think I'd like to. That's that's my. That's yeah. That's like a secret pro- back burner project for sure. That's is, a uh, cool idea. Some, some kind of deep dive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And of course, I know public defender Dave Donnelly. I mean, how can you? Sure, no, I, no, I understand. How, how can you? I don't not? know if your audience does. I, I know you do. Yeah, <laughs> yeah no, my audience probably doesn't. Yeah, um, but yeah. Um, Matt, this has been such a delight to catch up with you and have you on the show. It's already been over an hour. 
time flies. Yeah. Oh, thanks, man. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. Well, thanks for doing it. Of I course. Um, before we wrap up, I'd love for you to t- and have you do my sign off. I would like for you to just pitch to the folks where they can find your stuff, where they can find you on social media, where they can find the podcasts, all of that stuff. Okay. So if you're interested in my journey as a magician and also behind the scenes of every uh, uh, episode of Penn & Teller Fool Us, you actually want to go. It's a Patreon-only feed. Uh, it's it's good. You can go to patreon.com slash mindnoodler or search for Abracababble. That's the name of the podcast. And uh, the reason why it's behind a little bit of a paywall is uh, is because we talk about magic openly. And so it's not like we pride ourselves in giving away magic secrets, but we talk very practically about the performance of magic. It's very much an insider's magic podcast and not one for the masses. Uh, you can go there and check that out. Um, totally searchable and free is the ice cream social, Matt and Mally's ice cream social. It's me and my comedy partner of 10 years, more than that actually. Uh, but it's just us. Uh, we answer listener mail. We do jock versus nerd trivia battles. And, uh, we basically start talking about anything with the hope of going into ridiculous comedic bits. Uh, the, the, my pitch on that one is that it is dumb jokes for smart people is my pitch for ice cream social. Um, we're, we're a lot of smart people's guilty pleasure of laughing at the dumbest jokes possible podcast. Uh, and of course, lastly, if Penn Jillette is a major figure in so many ways, I have the delight of being a co-host for him twice a week on Penn Sunday School. Awesome. Yeah, I, my, favorite, my favorite new thing about Ice Cream Social as it's evolved is that now that you're on a network and you have ads is that it's not good enough for you guys to let there be a spot for the ad when Jacob says, let's take a break. You then, in case there's no ad, have to fill it with a fake ad, and it's never a real product or even anything in the realm of reality. It's always the strangest thing you can come up with. And usually, very rarely, very rarely uh, is, is a hurdle presented, and the solution is something that becomes a, both a favorite part for the audience and a favorite part for the hosts. But that's what's happened here. So we joined a network, and then if not everybody got ads, yeah. even though they're even though we had to take ad breaks, and so our only solution was then we have to at least run some kind of commercial so that somebody hears something, uh, so that's not this awkward uh, return to action kind of thing. Right. And we want to keep flow in the episode, and so whether you get an ad or you don't get an ad, we don't break flow. So yeah, we do really absolutely bizarre commercials on the spot every time we don't plan them ahead of time and we just go into and they often become people's favorite bits of the show is our fake commercials yeah yeah they're just great because i'm on the i'm a patron of this incredible podcast and so i don't i have the non-ad feed and like and every time i just i i think they can't possibly come up with something more ridiculous and every time you absolutely do it's my favorite thing uh, yeah, and I wish I wish I could take credit for it. It was a listener's idea. It was it was uh, someone on Twitter said That's... it, and I wish I remembered who they were. So I give them full credit. Uh, but but uh, it's 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 a great thing. Yeah, that's, that's so awesome. And of course, you can be found at Sweet Maddie D on Twitter. Um, Matt, yeah. it's it's such an honor to chat with you again. I'm so glad we met all those years ago, and I look forward to when we're not in the pre-apocalypse to actually see you in person in Vegas at some point <laughs> when yeah, we're not yeah. hiding at home. But uh, I'll yeah. ask you to sign us off. Uh, the saying on the podcast is music is life and life is good. The idea that even in the shittiest of times, if you're making good art, life can't be that bad. So if you could say that for me and wrap us up, I would really appreciate it. <laughs> hey, guys, music is life and life is good. And thanks for listening. That's it for this episode of Crash Chords Autographs. 
Our theme music is by Michael Kill. Our logo was designed by Case Aiken and Joey Amans. If you like the show, please rate and review us on iTunes and Facebook. You'll help us reach more listeners. Questions, comments, or guest recommendations? Email matt.storm at crashcords.com or hit us up on Twitter at CrashCordsWeb. Thanks for listening. Hi, this is Victor Devon, and I am the host of We Burlesque, the podcast. Every Monday, I talk to fabulous denizens of nightlife, including burlesque performers, both seasoned and new to the form, drag performers, performance artists, DJs, and artists who make up their respective scenes. You can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and more. Please visit weburlesque.com to check out episode recaps and see all the formats available. And remember that music is life. Life is good.